You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. All right. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I was back last week, but of course, long weekend, so a lot of you are still away, so it's, it's great to see you here. If you are visiting us this morning or just, just checking out the church, I just want to um, extend an especially warm welcome to all of you as well. And if you have any questions or you want to contact me, my email is gregatthegate.org, really easy, or there's comment cards in the back, or you can talk to someone who looks like they know what they're doing, and we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Greg, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm really excited because this morning we're going to be starting a new ser- sermon series that I've been thinking about and planning and, and praying about uh, since before the summer even started, and so, so a bunch of the books that I was reading over, over uh, my sabbatical were before this series, uh, and this series we've titled is God for Us, God for Us. And uh, this will probably be like a five-week sermon series, depending on how it goes. If it's going well, it might be a little longer. If it's not, uh, I might cut it off at one week. I don't know. We'll see how today goes. Um, and then after that, we're going to get into, back into our uh, regular routine uh, by going through a book of the Bible or something like that. And we haven't fully decided where we're going to go next in that regard. We have a couple ideas we're praying about. So we'll see. And uh, we always appreciate your prayers uh, as, as pastors, Blair and I do, and, and you know, in, in the direction of the church and just praying for us as well. So make sure, please, that you're doing that. We, we, we're desperate for your prayers. So, uh, But this morning, Deusa pro nobisa. I practiced that like 50 times uh, so that I would sound super smart. And a little bit, and I'm sure it sounded a little bit pretentious as well. Uh, <laughs> but simply put, it means God for us, or God is for us. It means God is, is rooting for us. Right? It means God is on our side. It means He loves us. It means He's not giving up on us. It means that He's got our backs. Right? In Romans 8.31b, uh, the second half of Romans 8.31, the Apostle Paul declares... If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this isn't a a pithy statement he's making here. And it's not just a doctrinal idea either, right? It's, It's not even a... And it's not just a rhetorical question. This is a battle cry. This is a battle cry. This is a call for all Christians here that declares that if God is who he says he is, and since he's done all these awesome things to save us and bring us back to him, namely dying on the cross for us and defeating death for us, then what are we waiting for? Right? What are we waiting for? We have nothing to fear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're secure in his arms. This is also a battle cry to go, right? To go, to move, to be who we've been called and preordained to be as the church, to proclaim the name of Jesus for the glory of God. That's our church's passion statement, to, to proclaim the name of Jesus for the glory of God. That's what we're all about. It's, it's a call for us to go, to make disciples, to shine the light of Christ in the world, to proclaim his salvation, and to do it with, with boldness with confidence and with joy because if God is for us then nothing can stop us nothing can stop this just just think of it God 
Yahweh, the, the creator of the universe, Lord of heaven and earth, King of kings, Alpha and Omega, our Savior and Redeemer, God, he's for us. Just think of that. Little old imperfect us. He's for us. Do we get how amazing that is? And that's not a rhetorical question. I'm seriously asking it. I'm seriously asking you to ask yourselves, and I'm asking myself as well, do do we get how amazing that is? And we might say, yes, of course I do. In fact, I just posted a meme on Facebook the other day with this verse on it, with the background of a sunset, and it just just made me feel really good for the day. Right? Come on. I'm sure some of you have done that. Right? So we've heard the verse. Yes, I got Cheryl again. That is my goal. I'm actually done now. Sorry, Cheryl. I'll stop making jokes. Maybe. Um, so we've heard the verse, right? Fine. <laughs> but <laughs> obviously, sure, I've seen a few of those memes. But do we know that verse then? Beyond it just being that nice encouragement to get us through our day, right? Do our lives reflect? Knowing that verse and that truth. Or better yet, what, what do we actually think of when we hear that God is for us? What do we think of? Like when, like, like when you hear that statement, in what way do you think that God is for you? It's an important question to ask. Because our answer will actually be a direct correlation of what we think of God. For example, if we think God is around to make culturally relevant jokes to lighten the mood while granting us all of our wishes, chances are you think God is a blue genie, right? Where's the blue genie? There it is. (laughs) So the, the ways in which we think God is for us reflect how we think of God. Right? Does that make sense? The ways in which we think God is for us reflect how we think of God. But here's the problem in today's culture, though. There, there, there are so many voices and opinions and ideas and theologies and pastors and religions and non-religions that, that tell us how we should define God. Right? And, and so trying to sort out this confusing mess can cause uncertainty. Right? And cause a lack of confidence in truly believing it and living out this truth that God is for us. How can we be confident if God is for us if we're not confident in who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's promised to do? How can we be confident that God is for us if, if our eyes aren't even on God but as Tina was saying in her testimony last week, it, our eyes are distracted by, by Netflix or, or iPhones or whatever else, right? Let me switch gears a little bit here. I think it's safe to assume that most of us have probably heard this quote that I'm about to say. Uh, it's from the infamous fictional criminal mastermind, Kaiser Soze. 
And um, it goes like this. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Maybe you've probably all heard that quote, right? It's kind of a cool line. Um, and uh, in no way am I promoting that you go watch the movie, okay? Um, I just feel like as a pastor, I should probably say that. Uh, it's a cool line, but I actually disagree with it. I disagree with this line. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting concept, but I disagree with it because in my opinion, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is the same trick that he's been playing since the beginning of man's existence. Convincing the world that God is someone he's not. That's his trick. Convincing the world that God is someone he's not. Convincing the world that God is against us. Convincing the world that God is unloving, or that God has abandoned us, or that God is unjust, or that God is a psychopath, or or that God is around to to make us rich, or, or whatever else, right? Convincing the world that God is someone he's not. Because that's his trick, because what happens if we start viewing God incorrectly? Just even just even a little bit. We start to have false expectations of God, which lead to disappointments. I prayed for a pony and didn't get a pony. God was me. Or we start to become suspicious or angry with him, right? How could God allow that to happen? Or we start to feel distant from him. Because, of course, we're not actually following him anymore. We're following a skewed version of him. We're searching for a skewed version of him. I remember when um, I, was, I was like four years old and my family was at church and... and um, I grabbed onto my dad and hugged his leg, and then I looked up, and it was this, like, weird other guy, right? I was freaked out. That's the devil's trick, right? He's trying to get us to grab the leg of some weird other guy that kind of looks like God, but isn't God. To convince us that God is someone he's not. So that we end up thinking, well, he's not for us. Maybe even against us. And he's gotten pretty good at that trick. If you're not following me, well, let me put it like this. It's kind of like high school, okay? And what I'm about to tell you now is based on a true story. Uh, Actually, it's more of a combination of a few stories that happened to me. But for the sake of the people involved, I'm going to change their names. So if your name is the same as one of the names that I've chosen... It's not about you. I, I apologize. It's not about you. So I'm just I'm saying that right now. Um, anyways, the story goes something like this. Back in the late 90s when I was in high school, LCI, green and gold. I, that's probably the first time I've ever said green and gold. I had, I, I had no school spirit. <laughs> anyways... I had this acquaintance type friend, like we kind of knew each other, and we'll call her Carly, okay? Carly. (laughs) And one day she got got together with another mutual friend of ours during a lunch break, and we'll call this friend Brittany, okay? So we got Carly, who I kind of knew, Brittany, who I knew pretty well. Anyway, at some point during the lunch hour, Carly told Brittany that I had said something mean and completely untrue about Brittany to a bunch of my other friends. 
Now, of course, Brittany, who was just informed that I had said something mean about her to a bunch of her other friends, was instantly offended and appalled that I would say such a terrible and untrue thing about her, especially to all our other friends. How could he say something like that? That's not true. So without questioning Carly's motives or thinking about my character and my past history and friendship with her, she instantly believed Carly. I mean, why would Carly make this up? It's not high school. Oh, it is high school. I don't know. Why would Carly make this up? Now, in her mind, in Brittany's mind, I was this evil person all of a sudden. And so in response to this, and I guess to make me feel how she felt, Brittany went ahead and decided to say a bunch of mean and untrue things about me to all of our friends. Of course, the truth is that I didn't actually say anything mean about Brittany. I'm a pretty nice guy. I don't usually say mean things about people. But here's the thing. Carly was a pathological liar and addicted to drama and getting attention. We've all met one of those, right? So this, this was her game. This is what she did. And to make matters worse, she was good at it. She had a silver tongue, right? In other words, she was very cunning and convincing when she wanted to be, which is probably why Brittany believed her. And what followed, of course, was the typical high school, he said, she said drama of rumors and backstabbing and revenge and highly emotional chaos, all of which affected the loyalties and friendships of pretty much everyone in our immediate group of friends. Notes were passed, songs were written, right? <laughs> Phones were hung up, things were said, and Carly, well, Carly enjoyed every minute of it with popcorn and hand. The funny thing about it is that I didn't even hear about all this going on. It was all going on behind my back. I didn't even hear about it a couple of days into the mess. It already become this huge mess. No one bothered to inform me it was happening. No one, no one bothered to ask me if I had said things Carly had said about Brittany. They just all decided to shun me. Because once my character was called into question, even though it was all untrue, once my character was called into question, I was done. My reputation was tainted. I think it took weeks before I was able to make amends with everyone and apologize for something I didn't even say or do. And as I, as I said last week, I, I hate drama. I can't stand that kind of drama, especially senseless drama like that. So this whole experience for me was um, torture, basically, right? Anyways, to sum up the story again, all it took for my friends to betray and hate me was for someone to lie about me so that they'd question my character. One clever and cunning lie. Once that happened, that was it for me. My reputation was tarnished. I couldn't be trusted regardless of my past and positive history with them. And again, this is actually based on a true story that happened to me. But let's be honest, it's pretty much what high school is like, right? Uh, it's also pretty much what every reality TV show is like. It's also pretty much what every episode of every show on the CW channel is like. In other words, it's nothing new. In fact, it's probably happened to you, right? And, and in fact, this tale is almost old as the beginning of creation. It's pretty much what Genesis 3 is like. If you read through Genesis 3, that's what it's like. The story of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. For real, change the setting of high school to the garden. Right? Change Carly's name to the serpent. Change Brittany's name to Eve, the gullible one, right? Change, change Brittany's friends who joined uh, in her hating on me to Adam. 
and change my character in the story to God. Um, of course, I have to play God in that scenario, right? It just worked out that way. Okay, I'm not implying anything. I've been in an elders meeting later. We'll, they'll pray for me, okay? Um, Anyways, right, what we have in, is the same scenario in the Garden of Eden, right? God, God was chilling in the Garden of, in, of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? The, they're best friends, right? And naming animals, drinking milk and honey, everyone's sunbathing uh, with no shame, right? And it was all good, very good, in fact, right? And then one day, out of nowhere, Adam and Eve betrayed God, just like out of nowhere. They do the one and only thing that God asked them not to do, eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why the sudden change? Why did they suddenly go against their creator, their God, their best friend? Why did they lose trust in God? Well, as Eve would admit to God later after God sought them out, because they were in hiding, and we're going to be talking about that in, uh, next week, I think, that, that God is God who pursues us. He seeks us out even when we're trying to hide, which is what he did there. And Eve admits to him, but the reason that she turned on him is because the serpent tricked her. The serpent tricked her. And how did he trick her? Simple. By convincing her pretty easily that God wasn't for her. And he did it by getting her to question God's character. Right, let's read that. Uh, Genesis 3, 1-4. It says, The snake was the most intelligent of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, Well, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, Don't eat from it and don't touch it or you will die. And the snake said to the woman, You won't die? God knows that on on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see what the snake is doing there? (coughs) Excuse me. He's cunning and clever, right? Just like Carly, that silver tongue. He's able to convince Eve to question God's love for her. He's saying, God's God's lying to you. He's saying saying to her, come come on, did, did God really say you'd die? Did he? Right? Even if he did, he, you won't die. You won't die. He's just hiding something from you. That's what he's doing. He's got ulterior motives. He, he, just, he just doesn't want you to be like him as a God. He's not on your side. He's not for you. He's against you. And once that seed of doubt was planted in her mind, she ate the fruit. And then she invited Adam to join in. That's all it took to cause her to lose trust in God. The serpent got her to view God as someone he wasn't. See, the oldest trick in the book. Once her vision was skewed, God's reputation was tainted, she no longer believed that God was for her anymore. That's that's Satan's goal. He doesn't want us to live our lives trusting God. He doesn't want us to live our lives forging ahead, declaring the kingdom of God, growing in Christ, making disciples, all these things that we're called to do as Christians. No, he he doesn't even care if we think God exists or not. 
He just doesn't want us to grasp that truth that God is for us. So he's figured out, you know, all he has to do is use our pride against us or our fear against us or our apathy against us. You know, by, by planting an inkling of doubt in our hearts and minds to get us to question God's character, to, to shake our confidence, make us suspicious of God, make us think that God has let us down for some reason, maybe because we're not rich yet or whatever the reason is. You know, make us think maybe that, that God actually has it out for us. Make us think that God is holding out on us. Make it look like God's unfair or angry or whatever. And he's going to use circumstances in our lives and experiences in our lives to to, to plant these seeds of doubt. Anything to make us look at God differently than, than from who he actually is. And not completely, but just enough so that we become ensnared and immobile. Trapped in fear, caution, or uncertainty, or apathy. Just enough so that we don't live as conquerors through Christ. And let's be honest then. Maybe that's more what our Christian lives look like. Immobile, uncertain, unfearful, apathetic. Because yes, we've heard this verse a hundred times before. I've heard many like rah-rah sermons about this verse before. But do we know it? Do we believe it? Do we live it? Do we actually know how God is for us in regards to who He is and what He's done and is doing for us? And does it cause us to live differently than the rest of the world? Or is our vision skewed? Are we falling for the oldest trick in the book? Are we feeling handcuffed for moving forward because we've become suspicious of God's motives? Or do we trust God or do we shrink back in the fear of man and what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be? Do we actually desire God's ways or rather demand that God agree with ours? And if he doesn't agree with ours, then well, he must be unloving. Or when tragedy or natural disasters strike, like like all that's going on in the world today, fires and earthquakes and floods in the midst of all these things are we still able to declare God is for us and I'm not minimizing all these disasters that are going on they're terrible but that's the point we need to know that God is for us or if we're being beaten and persecuted for our faith or even just made fun of for our faith like the apostle Paul was right, being persecuted and thrown in prison or like Christians throughout the world even today that are being persecuted, would we still be able to declare, if that was us, would we still be able to declare, God is for us? Or when we don't understand our circumstances, or we're feeling distant from God, are we still able to declare with the psalmists who often declare the same things, but yet they're still able to say, God is for us? Or again, are we falling for the oldest trick in the devil's playbook? John Mark Homer, he's the author of one of the books I read in preparation for this series this summer. He writes this. He writes this. Um, Many of us ache for relationship with God. 
yet feel distant and disconnected from him. As if he's more of an idea we believe in our head than a person we relate to. Why, why do we feel this gap between us and God? Could it be that a lot of what we think about God is wrong? Not all wrong, but wrong enough to mess up how we relate to him. What if our quote-unquote God is really a projection of our own identity, ideas, and desires? And what if the real God is different, but far better than we could ever imagine? All right, see, he's talking about the, old, the oldest trick in the book there. Getting us to think just wrong enough about God so that our faith wavers. And these days, as I said before, and this is more common than ever, in fact, in, in this postmodern, post-Christian era that we're living in, we're, we're actually encouraged as individuals to pick and choose aspects of God that we like and that suit us and then throw out the ones that we dislike. We're strongly encouraged to view God wrongly in our culture. It's celebrated. Right? As long as it feels good for us, then believe it. Or don't. Yay! In other words, we're basically encouraged to design our own gods and our own image. But again, this is just another form of the oldest trick in the book, right? And, and, and besides, how can, I, how can a made-up God be for us? Right? This God's going to let us down. This God's definitely going to feel distant, right? Because it doesn't exist. Just makes us feel better about ourselves because it agrees with everything. We need to look at God for who He is. Get a popular phrase these days, especially on blog posts and social media feeds. It goes like this. You've probably heard it before. Quote unquote, I can't believe in a God who fill in the blank, right? Or therefore, I can't believe in a God who would cause a flood. Right? Or whatever. I can't believe in a God who... But as theologian Jack Hoey Third once said on a, a podcast I was listening to about four months ago, and it stuck with me this whole time, he said, saying this phrase, I can't believe in a God who... Fill in the blank with whatever you want. Saying that phrase actually says nothing about God and everything about you. Do you get that? Saying that phrase, I can't believe in a God who whatever, actually says nothing about who God is, but actually says everything about who you are and what you believe and who you want God to be, right? John Mark Comer adds to that sentiment when he calls that way of thinking a bizarre twist of logic and says, as if, as if what we think and feel about God is an accurate barometer for what he is actually like. Right? For example, after talking with the serpent, Eve felt like she couldn't believe in a God who would hide something from her. I can't believe in a God who would hide something from me. I can't believe in a God who wouldn't let me be a God too. Right? And thus she was deceived. She betrayed God because she thought God was someone he wasn't and she couldn't believe in that God. But, but also, did, did her idea of who God was actually change who God really is? Absolutely not. God doesn't change with our opinions of who he is. Right? God doesn't change based on who we think we want him to be, or whether we understand him, or whether we agree or not with who he is. That's the best part about God. 
right? He's God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is who he is. In fact, he said that himself. I am who I am. And so we can't even begin to comprehend what it means when he says he's for us if we don't, first of all, know him. Again, if if I told you I was for you, you know, after church, if I like give you a pat on the back and I was like, hey, I'm for you. No, that's a nice sentiment, right? Like like an encouraging, you know, like I said, like an encouraging pat on the back. You know, oh, this guy's my friend, right? That's nice. But eventually you'd probably want to know what I mean exactly, right? Like, am I going to be around all the time and cooking dinner for you? Is that how I'm going to be for you? Am, am, am I am I going to be willing to talk at all hours of the night? Am I, am I going to be paying your bills? Am I going to be your taxi driver? You know, what way do, am I implying that I'm for you, right? So just saying I'm for you is pretty vague if we don't actually know the character, motive, and expectations of the one saying it. In other words, we need to get back to who God is. Not not who we want God to be, or who we think we want God to be, or what others say about Him. And I'm not saying that we all have the wrong ideas, or that we're all off track. Hopefully we aren't. And I'm not saying either that I have all the answers, or that, or that I know exactly who God is either. I think, you know, ultimately God is, is understandable, right? Unfathomable. So I'm not saying that at all, but it's important at times that, that we, we take a step back. Right? We take a step back from, from all the blog posts, from all the Facebook feeds, the podcasts, the opinions, and the social and cultural pressures that are being forced on us. Right? To, to, it's important to lay down our misconceptions, our suspicions, our false expectations as best we can. We're never going to be perfectly objective, right? But as best we can, and just take a good, hard, and humble look at who God says He is. That's what I did this summer, and it fired me up for who he is. The more I learned about who God is, the more excited I became about who God is. It fired me up for who he is. That's the purpose of this series, God for us. We're going to attempt to set the record straight. For, For those of us feeling distant from God, for those of us feeling suspicious, of God for those of us that are actually feeling like God's against us maybe or or are feeling unworthy of being in the presence of God for those of us who don't actually know God very well and even for for those of us who do the purpose of this series I hope will be to realign for some and reinforce for others our hearts and our minds on who God truly is and how much he has done and is doing for us so that as, as we set our eyes through him, through Jesus Christ, he can reignite our faith. He can reignite our boldness. He can strengthen us by his spirit to live for him. To live as more than conquerors. And don't get me wrong, this isn't going to be an intense apologetics course about who God is. But it will hopefully be an encouraging and refreshing look at his person. At who he is, who he says he is in his word. And what we'll discover, what I hope that we'll discover, is that he's a God who relentlessly pursues us, even when we try to hide from him in shame or pride. That he's a God who's faithful, who never gives up on us, 
even when we give up on Him. That He's a God who sings and rejoices over us, even when we're feeling unworthy. That He's a God who comes to us and knows us. That He's a God we can trust. That He's a God of justice, but also a God of compassion and mercy. That He's the God who loves us deeply and more than we know. And that the cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary is the exclamation mark of that love. Such unrelenting and passionate love that, that he sent his one and only begotten son to us to conquer sin and death for us and to invite us into his kingdom, into the presence of God. Fully forgiven, fully redeemed. He's the God who's for us. And so my prayer is that by the end of this series, that Romans 8.31 won't just be this pithy statement, won't just be this little encouraging thing that we say, you know, to help us get through our day, but that it will truly become a battle cry of our hearts. Not just in theory, but, but, but in the way we live for Him and proclaim Him in our lives and in this church body. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us. Amen? Let's read the passage one more time, and then we'll receive communion together. Romans 8, 31, 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.